The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 15. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. Last time we ended right as Lady Macbeth wondered if Macbeth was like the cat in the adage, wanting to eat the fish, but worried about getting his paws wet. Macbeth likewise wants his hands on the crown, but doesn't want to dirty them in the process. There's a lot of pressure from Lady M, questioning his manhood and his cowardice, wondering whether he's a man or a beast. Macbeth has just insisted that he dares do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. But his wife has got a blistering reply. When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. Nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. This is one of the most controversial and contested speeches Lady Macbeth has in the play, as we shall see. First up, she encourages Macbeth again. She's just wondered whether he's a man or a beast, but now wants to remind him of how courageous he sounded when he first mentioned this idea of killing the king. When he was thinking of doing it, then he was a man, and a man that wanted to become so much more than he was. That ambition was manly and exciting. When you durst do it, then you were a man, and to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. At that point, the odds were against them. It wasn't the right time or the right place, but Macbeth's ambition and his manliness would have made him force them into position for them. But now, she's saying, time and place have combined of their own accord to create the perfect circumstance for this murder, since Duncan has come to their home. But somehow this alignment, this perfect opportunity, has rattled Macbeth and unmade him. Nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. Next we get the really startling image, and there are a great many passionate interpretations of it. Lady Macbeth explains that she has given suck, she has nursed a child, and she knows of the tender, loving connection that can be felt in this most natural, basic of moments, a woman feeding a helpless infant. She says, I have given suck, and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. Now, we know the historical Lady Macbeth had a child from a previous relationship before she married Macbeth. Later in the play, however, it is a crucial line from Macduff when he points out that he, Macbeth, has no children. Interpreters of the play love to fixate on the implications of this line. Did they have a child together and perhaps did it die, as suggested at the start of Justin Curzel's 2015 film of the play? Or do we need to investigate a Scottish tradition of noblewomen nursing the children of others? 
Or is this an indication that Macbeth is impotent, perhaps an extension of the witch's prophecy, that he will be a king, but unlike Banquo, he will have no heirs? These all have meaning and impact, and I think we can leave room for all interpretations. What is so startling here is what Lady Macbeth says next. She knows how strong that feeling is of keeping a child alive, of feeding it, of being responsible for it and providing for its needs with her body. She would go against even this warm glow of care and smash the child's skull, despite everything, if she had sworn an oath the way Macbeth has. Interestingly, she goes from a rather vague it to describe the baby smiling at her to his boneless gums, almost as if trying to make Macbeth put a face on the child that she would sacrifice for the sake of this kind of promise. There's a terrible irony to her using this image so soon after her dark prayers to turn her milk to gall and unsex her. She's already traded her capacity for motherhood for the sake of their ambition. Now she's showing she'd also kill her child for it if she had to. I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. Husband and wife share a line of verse next, and the back-and-forth rhythm is quite exciting. Macbeth asks what happens if they fail, and her answer is, so be it, we fail. The rhythm keeps going into her next speech, so the flow of the whole thing sounds something like this. Had I so sworn as you have done to this, if we should fail, we fail. But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. When Duncan is asleep, whereto the rather shall his day's hard journey soundly invite him, his two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail so convince that memory, the warder of the brain, shall be a fume and the receipt of reason a limbeck only. When in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in a death, what cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Lady Macbeth has got it all figured out. The sticking place is that sweet spot where you're winding something or screwing something, that sure point when you can't screw it any further or you're certain it's secure. So if Macbeth pushes his courage to that point of certainty, then they cannot fail. Lady Macbeth is pretty organised, as well as supervising this big dinner, which is still going on off stage, lest we forget. She's cooked up a clear plan for the murder. They'll wait until Duncan is asleep. And after such a long journey today, he will presumably sleep deeply tonight. She will show the two chamberlains guarding Duncan's door a good time with wine and wassail or revelry. Her plan in so doing introduces a pretty complicated metaphor, relying on images from alchemy and Renaissance neurology. Memory was considered a guardian in the brain, and comparably reason was an important part of one's ability to function and behave. The alcohol she'll feed the men will turn their memories to vapour and their reason to a limbeck, a kind of vessel used in the distillation process. 
So their memories, now vapour, might pass through their reason, but even their reason could not hold their memories as they evaporated in their drunkenness. So her point is that she's going to get them drunk, and therefore they will not only sleep, but they won't do their job of protecting the king, and they won't remember anything. His two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail so convince that memory, the warder of the brain, shall be a fume, and the receipt of reason a limbeck only. When in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in a death, what cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put on his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? The plan is that these two are going to be asleep like pigs, dead to the world as they're drenched, almost pickled in her good wine, and the Macbeths can do whatever they want to the now unguarded Duncan. Better yet, they can blame the two drunken chamberlains, these spongy officers, who can bear the guilt for his slaughter. It all seems quite achievable. Macbeth wonders at the composure and focus of his wife her ability to plan all this with almost no warning. He compliments her, saying, Bring forth men-children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. Again, there's a brutal irony to this. He's telling her that she's brilliant, she's valiant, and that all of her children should be sons because her own metal, or make-up, is so fearless. But we already know that they're having children, is deeply unlikely. Macbeth really likes the idea of blaming the two chamberlains, and he ponders it further. Will it not be received, when we have marked with blood those sleepy two of his own chamber, and used their very daggers, that they have done it? Macbeth adds to the plan, suggesting that not only will they blame them, but they'll mark the two sleepy drunks with blood and maybe even use their daggers, so it'll be a natural assumption that they are the ones who will have killed the king. And Lady Macbeth agrees. Who dares receive it other, as we shall make our griefs and clamour roar upon his death? How could anyone think otherwise? As hosts welcoming the king to their home, they would already need to be above suspicion, and of course they will put on a great show of grief and clamour and roaring and horror when the news of this death gets out. All of this seems just about enough to convince Macbeth and put his fears to bed. I am settled, and bend up each corporal agent to this terrible feat. Away, and mock the time with fairest show. False face must hide what the false heart doth know. So he's made up his mind. He's settled, and is now prepared to screw his courage to that sticking place and bend up every muscle, every corporal agent, to be physically ready for the deed ahead, this terrible feat. Lest we forget, stabbing someone to death appears to require considerable physical effort. Away, he says, they should probably get back to the dinner table. They'll mock or delude the time with fairest show. It's yet another image of putting on a false face to greet the circumstances ahead, looking like the innocent flower again and all that. False face, he says, must hide what the false heart doth know. The scene, and indeed the whole first act, 
ends with this little rhyming couplet. There's a finality to this, as Macbeth has made up his mind, for now, and we're about to move on to another scene. We'll begin Act 2, Scene 1, next time, as we squirrel our way through the excitement of this brilliant play. It's so lovely to see so many of you tuning in from around the world. I hope you're finding your way through the show notes that accompany each episode on the hamletpodcast.com. I'm doing my best to lay out all of the text as clearly as possible, particularly so that you can see the way that so many lines are shared, as in this episode. Do be sure to have a look, and if there's any extra material that you think you'd find useful, I'm always happy to hear. Take care of yourself, thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.